you are now listening to the April 15th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have the Fruit of Spirit sermon and equipping the saints. First, let's begin with the Fruit of Spirit. Hello, this is Terry with the Fruit of Spirit a time in which we confess our hearts to the Lord. This past week, we began reflecting on the characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit. We considered the first characteristic that is love. We said love is such an important characteristic, we would use two weeks to cover it. So, continuing from last week, today we have the second installment on love. In general, the scripture doesn't offer a concise definition of love. Rather, it offers a general description of what love entails. Leviticus chapter 19 verses 9 through 18 describe what love is by enumerating the different aspects of love. For instance, verse 18 articulates, Love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. I am the Lord was written five times in Leviticus 19 to stress God's focus on loving neighbors. In addition, through the word Lord, God reminds us that He is the Lord who made a covenant with the Israelites, so they are bound to love their neighbors just as their Lord loved them through His grace and mercy. Now let's look closely at love in Leviticus chapter 19 and dig into how it was described. Verses 9 and 10 say that when we reap a harvest, we should not pick up everything to the very edges of the field so that the poor and less fortunate can come and gather some grains for themselves. Everything we have is given through God's grace, and He entrusts us to manage things graciously. Thus, we should share with others what God has given us in abundance. Verse 11 calls for an honest and virtuous life. We should keep away from stealing, lying, or deceiving others. At the heart of such an honest and virtuous life is Christ's love for us. It motivates us to have honesty and integrity. In verse 12, we are told to hold God's name holy. We should not profane the name of our God by superficially declaring that it is God's will to justify our selfish desires and plans. Verse 13 commands us not to defraud or rob our neighbor by holding back the proper wages of a hired worker. Shortchanging the wages and keeping it overnight cause pain to the other person. If we owe money to another, we must meet our obligation on time. Verse 14 commands us not to show contempt toward the disabled. We should not curse the deaf or set a trap in front of the blind. God prohibits us from ridiculing the physically challenged. Verse 15 commands us not to pervert justice or show partiality against the poor or show favoritism toward the rich. We should judge our neighbors fairly. Verse 16 commands us not to slander or gossip about our neighbor and put their life in peril for our own sake. Everyone was made in God's image, so we should not defame our neighbors regardless of our personal feelings toward them. Verse 17 commands us not to hate fellow citizens, but we should speak to them frankly and even rebuke them when appropriate so as not to share in their guilt. If we hate someone in our heart, we would feel guilty. Sin and guilt get in the way of our relationship with Christ. That's why rebuking one another frankly and openly will help eliminate the feeling of guilt and sin. However, frankly rebuking one another is not easy, as it can worsen the relationship. But if silent, just to maintain peace in the relationship, it would lead to even deeper sense of guilt. When you rebuke or scold someone, you should remember it goes both ways. The person being rebuked or scolded should take it in humility and love, and the person who rebukes or scolds should do it prayerfully with humility and love. Verse 18 says that we should not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone from our own people. In other words, we should forgive, love, and bless others wholeheartedly. Today, we have considered some examples of love as they appear in Leviticus chapter 19, verses 9-18. through 18. 
When we meditate on God's word and accept them in obedience, we emulate Jesus' characteristics and bear the fruit of the Spirit. Then how can we grow in us the same love that God describes? The answer is the Holy Spirit, the fact that we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. Through the Spirit, we build a close relationship with our Savior Christ. When our inner being is filled with God's Word, through the relationship with Christ, the sinful nature in us will diminish, and the Holy Spirit will rule over our sinful nature. That is the process of growing God's love within us. Love is our response to God's grace given to us through Christ. Let us remind ourselves of God's amazing work in Christ and be grateful for His grace so we can follow God's command for love. Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Bill Milter of Arizona Community Church. Today's topic is Reverend Exiles. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Bill. Jesus said it 
in very robust terms the fact that we are not of this world. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now, why is this significant? This world is not our home. We're exiles. We're sojourners. We're passing through. We are pilgrims passing through. What's the significance of that? Well, I don't know if you know this, but one of the defining characteristics of those of us that are exiles is to be that of reverence. Believe it or not, church, it is my honor to take us to the word of God today. First Peter chapter one, verses 14 through 17. Hear the word of God this morning. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Verse 17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time as exiles. Amen. Church, again, I present to you the word of God today. Folks, we are not just to be exiles. One of the defining characteristics of us being exiles is that we are to be reverent exiles. And as our passage says right here, we are to be reverent exiles because God is holy and he's called us to be holy and he's going to hold us accountable for that. Now, here's the good news. As believers, we're forgiven. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, your debt has been forever canceled. You are forever a child of God and that can never be taken away from you. Amen. Praise God for our salvation. You are forever a child of God. Nevertheless, the lives that we live are still going to be held to account by God. You see, many believers are under the mistaken impression that when I accept Jesus as Savior and Lord, I forego all judgment. But that's simply not true. Yes, as believers, we escape eternal condemnation. That's off the table. You're going to heaven. I'm going to heaven by our faith in Jesus. We are saved. We escape eternal condemnation, but not divine accountability. And this should very much cause us to live as reverent exiles every day of our lives. Let me give you a few passages where it talks about the divine accountability that you and I are going to face. First Corinthians, Paul writes this, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master building, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. Fire means God's judgment. It will be revealed by fire and fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire, as or through judgment. Again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we read this, but with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. Paul says, I don't even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. I might have a clear conscience, but the Lord might reveal something to me that I didn't see. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. And then in 2 Corinthians, one last verse. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, I think for many Christians, the thought of getting into heaven is all that matters. Whew, I made it. I'm forgiven. I'm a child of God, right? Praise God, I made it. I got my fire insurance. I'm in the door. But far less thought is given to the reality that we as Christians and the lives that we live are going to be held to an account. The spiritual fruit that we bear for the Lord, it will be rewarded. And it will be rewarded beyond your wildest imagination. If you give even a cup of water in the name of Christ, your reward for that is going to be beyond your wild imagination. More on that in a minute. But everything else that's done in the flesh will be burned up. My old seminary professor, Dr. Henry Holloman, always used to say, God cannot accept from you what the Holy Spirit doesn't produce through you. 
He also said, gentlemen, when we get to heaven and I'm cleaning your mansion, you be nice to me. (laughs) And so if we get to heaven and Pastor Bill is cleaning your mansion, you be nice to me, okay? I'm just saying that right now. I'm going to hold you accountable. Bring up this sermon. Now, here's the deal. We all understand the gravity of God's judgment that either sends people to heaven or hell. We understand that. The weight of that rests on us because people's eternity is at stake. But much harder to perceive is the eternal significance of God's judgment upon believers resulting in eternal reward or loss. But I would venture to guess it's far more significant than we give it credit. Again, many of us are like, wow, as long as I'm in, that's all that really matters. I don't really care about the other judgment that's going to come. But Paul was concerned about it. He brought it up many times. As a matter of fact, you know who else was concerned about it? Jesus. He talked about it. As a matter of fact, he told a parable on this very subject. It's in Luke chapter 19. It's kind of a long passage. I'm going to read it to us. But church, hear the word of God. And they heard these things. That is the disciples. He proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem. And because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive himself a kingdom and then return. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them each 10 minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But the citizens hated him, not necessarily his servants, but the the other citizens. And of course, that represented the Jewish leadership. But the citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered the servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. So I said, folks, the smallest thing you do in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be rewarded beyond your wildest imagination. You shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I was a severe man? Of course, this guy's got Jesus all wrong. You knew that I was a severe man taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Why then did you not put the money in a bank? And at my coming, I collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. And they said to him, Lord, he already has 10, 10 minas. I tell you that to everyone who has more will be given, but to the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Do you think this judgment matters to God? Yes, it does. God stands ready to richly reward you and me for our faithful service for him in this lifetime. And guys, it is going to be beyond your wildest imagination. Again, even a cup of water offered in the name of Christ will be rewarded beyond your wildest imagination in the life to come. Since this coming accountability for believers is a recurring theme in the Bible, what should we do? Here's what we should do. We should do exactly what Peter tells us to do. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with what? Fear throughout your time as exiles. That is right in line with what we see the Apostle Paul saying. Many of you are familiar with this verse, Philippians 2.12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my present but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with what? Fear and trembling. We hear this verse quoted all the time, but what in the world does that mean? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What it means is this. Now that you are saved, take seriously and reverently your high calling to be a holy people in this generation and live your life seeking to please the Lord and not men. Fear God, revere him, serve him, and no one else. Amen? It's crazy how much time we spend in this life trying to please those whose opinions don't even matter. 
and so little time trying to please God, whose is the only opinion that matters. And because of that, what do we do? We spend our time fearing men. I wonder what they think about me. I wonder what the people online think about me. Who cares? Who cares? Paul says, I don't care if any of you judges me. I don't even judge myself. I don't even care what I think about me. With regard to working out our salvation with fear and trembling, Dr. John MacArthur says this, it is the solemn, reverential fear that springs from a deep adoration and love. It acknowledges that every sin is an offense against a holy God and produces a sincere desire not to offend and to grieve him, but to obey, honor, please, and glorify him, not just in some things, but in all things. Now, what I'm about to say is incredibly important, so do not miss this. God is just as serious about your salvation as he is your sanctification. And by sanctification, that's just a theological term that means your holiness, that you are a holy people, that we are a holy people. Let me ask you a question. How serious is God about your salvation? Well, the answer is simple. Enough to send his one and only begotten son into the world to die for the sins of men. That's how serious God is about saving you. He spared no expense. He sent his son to die for you. This is the good news. This is the gospel. The righteous one came into the world to die for the unrighteous. Now, let me ask you a second question. How serious is God about your sanctification? Folks, the answer is exactly the same as the first question I asked. Enough to send his one and only sinless son into the world to die on a cross, taking the punishment that you and I deserved. Folks, Jesus didn't just die so that he could save you and me. He also died so that he could sanctify you and me. Let me ask you a question. If I were to ask you, what is God's will for your life? What would you say? Here's a better question. What does the Bible say? Here's what the Bible says. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress or wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. He's going to hold people accountable as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Remember, God is on his throne. All men are going to be called before the judgment seat of Christ. For God has not called us for impurity, but holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God. Paul wrote this to Timothy. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Listen, folks, I'm not putting roots down in this world. I'm an exile passing through, but I'm not just any exile. I'm a reverent exile. I want to be set aside for honorable uses in this lifetime so that God can use me before he calls me home. Amen? I'm assuming you want the same too. I want to get to heaven and go, I'm exhausted, God. And he goes, enter into your rest. I want to need that rest. I want to give my life away. I want to be so exhausted when this life is over because I was living as an exile, a reverent exile, serving God in holiness, that when I get to heaven and he says, well done, good and faithful servant, enter your rest, I want to fall into his arms exhausted. And I know you do too. That we are to live as reverent exiles is all throughout the Bible. Listen to this verse. Psalm 211. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Look at the pairing of these words, serve with fear, rejoice with trembling. Listen, in both instances, we have words paired together that don't seemingly belong together. Listen, we have all heard sermons on the importance of serving the Lord, right? You probably have heard 10,000 of those sermons. You've heard a bunch of them from me. Serve the Lord, use your gifts while you can on this planet. You know, your feet were set in this generation for a purpose. Get busy, go do your business that God has set you here for. But let me ask you this. You've heard 10,000 sermons on serving the Lord, but when was the last time you heard a sermon about serving the Lord with fear? Probably never. And I've never preached one until now, I suppose. We serve the Lord with fear because we know that he's going to call us to account. And when he says, Bill, what have you done? I want to be the guy that says, Lord, you gave me 10 gifts. Here's 10 more. I want to double. I want to be the first guy with the 10 minus who got 10 more and then gets one more on top of that. Sorry if I'm selfish, but that's what I want. Same goes for rejoicing. We've all heard a million sermons on the importance of rejoicing, but when was the last time you heard a sermon exhorting God's children to rejoice with trembling? 
Come before the Lord your God, bow before him, rejoice and tremble before him because he is the Lord God Almighty who reigns and his opinion is the only opinion that matters. Do not worry about this world, the rulers of this world, the people of this world, what people think about you. Who cares? None of them are going to hold you accountable. Only one will hold you accountable and that is God Almighty. Serve him, revere him, worship him and adore him. That's the whole point of this sermon. We're not just called to live as exiles. We're reverent exiles. We fear him. We are people who serve God with fear, who rejoice with trembling. David sums it up well. This is Psalm 2, just three Psalms later in Psalm chapter 5, verse 7. He says this, but I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. And oh, by the way, when I enter the house to worship the Lord, what is my attitude? I will bow down toward your holy temple in fear of you. By the way, If you want to know what it looks like to be reverent, what does a reverent exile look like? Look no farther than the spiritual realm. It should not surprise us that the angelic beings that God has created revere him. You want to know how much they revere him? This much. Isaiah chapter 6. And the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. These are the angels that were created specifically to minister in the presence of God. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house, that is the temple, was filled with smoke. Fascinating. R.C. Sproul says this, these angels that fly before God, they cover their face. Why? It's as if the glory of God was too much for them. The very angels that are created to fly in the presence of God can barely stand to be there. They've got to cover their faces with two of their wings. Why do they have six wings? Because two, they got to cover their face. And with two, they cover their feet. Their feet is a sign of their creatureliness. It's as if, God, I can't stare at your glory and and you're so majestic and eternal and and amazing. I got to cover my creatureliness from you. And with two, they fly. And what do they see? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And when they say that, the thresholds shook. Inanimate objects shook at the glory of God. Folks, this is the God you serve. This is the God that we follow. This is the God that needs to be proclaimed in America today. You fear him. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You start here and stay here until that is crystal clear, not only in your life, but in the lives of those that you have influence over. If you're going, how do I influence people? You want to change somebody's mind, whatever it is you want to change their mind on. If you want to change their mind, go back to the root. The root is this. They probably don't fear God. So go back to the root. If you have children and grandchildren and you don't like where they're headed, You're trying to address the issues out here. You're just addressing the problems. Go back to the root. They don't fear the God that created them. They don't fear him. In Isaiah chapter six, we see a very similar situation in the book of Revelation. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, there those six wings are again, and full of eyes all around and within, they're getting a fuller description. And day and night, they never see saying, listen to this, day and night, they were created for this sole purpose. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Incredible. Perhaps even more telling than the angelic beings that were created to fly before the throne of grace, before the throne of God and can barely do that, is this fact. Even the demons believe in God and shudder. Remember, if you want to know what reverence looks like, look to the spiritual realm. The unseen world shudders at the presence of God. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even demons believe that and shudder. Listen, I meet people all the time in this country and other parts of the country. You ask them, do you believe in God? They go, of course I do. I believe in God. Just one problem. They don't fear him. I go, you believe in God, you do well. But know this. Even the demons believe, and they have the wherewithal to shudder at the presence of God. 
I'm not sure you do. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We start here and stay here until this is crystal clear. If you want to influence somebody or change someone, go back to the roots. We must revere and fear the one true God and him alone. It's fascinating to me that the demons shudder at the presence of God. It might be an indictment on modern day evangelicalism that there is perhaps greater reverence among the ranks of demons than the ranks of the redeemed. Why is the current state of the church is as it is? Why is the church, entire denominations are being shipwrecked. Entire churches are falling by the wayside into utter apostasy. Why is that? I can tell you why. They have lost their fear of the Lord. For many believers and churches, we have been told the priority is to be relatable and not reverent. In other words, we have been told that we should get the people of this world to see us who are believers and our churches as relatable, cool, even fun and funny because we assume and are told that if we do that, if we're fun and funny and relatable, this will draw them to us. Now, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. There is nothing wrong whatsoever with removing any unnecessary barriers from people seeing the gospel in us or hearing the gospel from us. But folks, when we sacrifice being reverent in order to be relatable, we are not helping the cause of Christ. We are hurting it. I'm going to say something and you might disagree with it. I think the people of this world are starving for something more at this point. The world is offering nothing but confusion and disorder. And I know that there are people out there like sheep without a shepherd who are looking for something more. And I think when they see Christians who are not just living as exiles, but they see us revering and fearing and worshiping the one true king, they're going to thirst. I really do believe that. I believe there's so many people out there that are thirsting. Give me something more. Please, somebody show me something more. And at that point, they don't need me to be relatable or funny. They need me to be reverent. I think people are attracted. And in this day and age, people will be attracted to the reverence they see in us. Let me ask you a question. When you read this verse right here, what comes to mind? In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. When I read that verse, you know what comes to my mind? Let people see your love and your gentleness, Bill, and your kindness. And rightly so. That all applies there. But you know one word that I never apply to this verse, but I'm going to start is reverence. Let your reverence shine to others. Let others see who you revere and fear and serve with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Don't be ashamed of that. And by the way, you do it all the time. You want to know a very practical way that Christians do this all the time? Every time I go out to a restaurant and I'm sitting there and I look over and it happens on occasion, I'll look over and I'll see a couple or a family bow their head to pray. And my heart's so blessed. And I'll usually go over and I'll just say, hey, I want to thank you for doing that. I give them a thumbs up or I'm like, thank you for doing that. Because in that moment, they were bowing their heads and showing who they were thanking that food for. They revere God. And every time you're out at a restaurant or even at home with your family over the holidays and you say, you know what, family? Maybe your family doesn't believe in the Lord. You say, I want to pray for this food. In that moment, you're showing who it is you revere, who it is that you fear. After the first service, Ruth came up to me. I caught her out on the plaza and she was telling me she was at a restaurant and a couple had prayed and she was just so blessed by it. She just went over and she said, thank you so much for doing that. And they came over and had this nice conversation. And when Ruth and her husband were about to pay the bill, they said, hey, can we get our bill? And the couple had already left. They said, well, it's already taken care of. Isn't that great? That's amazing. I think the people of this world are starving for something more. I think the people in our families are looking for something more. And you know what they need to see? They need to see a people who know that this world's not our home and that we have set on high in our hearts, the Lord God Almighty. First Peter 3.15, but in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. He is set apart in my heart, in my life. I revere and fear him. I serve him with all of my heart. I do not give glory. I don't worship celebrity pastors. I don't worship celebrity politicians. I worship the Lord God Almighty. Amen? We serve him and him alone. Dr. R.C. Sproul says this, and I finish with this. Authentic wisdom begins when we understand that God is to be the object of our devotion, our adoration, and our reverence. Folks, let's show ourselves to be wise exiles by living as reverent exiles. This is what the world needs to see in us. With the few days that we have on this planet, the few days that we have left, you serve the Lord with all your heart, 
soul, mind, and strength. You don't give one thought to what anyone else thinks about you. You don't even judge yourself. You leave that in the hands of God. You serve him with all of your heart, all of the days of your life. Amen. I finish with this question. Am I living reverently as if this world was not my home? You are now listening to Unity in Christ, the English hour in our broadcast program. You can download the app for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries by visiting the Google Play Store or the iTunes App Store. You can now listen to this week's or past week's programs on your Android or iPhone. Just search for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries to find it in the store. If you have any questions, please call us at 602 866-8999 or heartandsoul.org at gmail.com following program is called Equipping the Saints. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. And these mockers willfully ignore that truth. They willfully ignore that the world was created by the word of God and that it was flooded in the past by the same, by the word of God. God declared and he brought forth what he said he would do. And they are following their own lusts, trying to deceive people to live for the day rather than in light of eternity in which God has revealed and promised. So then the bad guys are saying, where is the promise of his coming, i.e. in judgment, as we're going to see? It hasn't happened. Everything's okay. God's okay with you. You can just live your life. God is okay. But God is not okay with sin and sinners, as we're going to see. Notice we have quite a different reality than what the bad guys say in verse 7. But the present heavens and earth, by his word, notice that, by his word, 
are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Here, in contrast to the mockers, the false teachers who imply that Christ isn't going to come in judgment, everything's continuing the same, in contrast to that, but the present heavens and earth, now we're going to see there's a present heavens and earth, and that's where we are right now, the present earth, but there's going to be a new heavens and earth. The present heavens and earth, by his word, are being reserved for fire. By his word, God has declared something. The world is on its way to being destroyed. That's what God says. The term reserved is an interesting term. And that destruction, by the way, is associated with the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. See that? The present heavens and earth are going to be destroyed by fire, or reserved for fire, and that is associated with, look at the end, kept for the day of judgment, verse 7, and destruction of ungodly men. It's associated together. The destruction and judgment of man is associated with the destruction of this present heavens and earth, as we're going to say. Notice this term reserved is kind of an interesting term. The present heavens and earth, by his word, are being reserved for fire. It's the same term that's used often in other places, storing up or laying up treasure. The word came to speak of someone who would grab their coins and stack them up. You see, storing up their treasure. Well, this present heavens and earth are being stored up in the sense, as we'll see, of judgment for fire. It is just moving towards that point in which God is going to bring forth judgment. God does not miss a beat. He's going to do what he says. The earth is increasingly being stored up for fire. God's wrath is piling on. So here we have two things reserved for fire. The environment in which sin has perpetrated or polluted, i.e. the heaven and the earth, we'll talk about that in a minute, and then sinners themselves, ungodly men and women. You say, wait a second, I realize the earth is messed up and sin has corrupted the earth. There's a fall, a curse of sinful man. I know that's the case. But how can heaven be messed up with sin? We know the truth that God's will is accomplished perfectly in heaven. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But yet we have the fall of the angels. We have Satan and his demons who have access under God's sovereignty to come in and out of heaven. They'll be kicked out, Revelation chapter 12. But they have access. Even the present heavens are tainted by sin in that sense. We're going to see that God is going to make a new heavens and a new earth. He's going to make one where righteousness alone dwells. We'll see that later on. Verse 7. But the present heavens and earth, by his word, are being reserved or stored up for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Now I want to move down a little bit in our passage and look at verse 10 because that helps us see what he's talking about here. Look down at verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. This is the same thing. and We're going to see that it is the same thing in context. The heavens are going to pass away with a roaring noise. And then he also says the elements, that's the stoichia, the ABCs, the building blocks of this universe. The stoichia are going to be destroyed. Now this word destroyed is actually luo. It speaks of being loosened. The building blocks of this universe are going to be loosened apart, destroyed. He says here, with intense heat. And the earth and its works will be burned up. Looks like heavens and earth are going to pass away, doesn't it? That's what Jesus said, right? The heavens and earth will pass away, but my word will not pass away, right? He said that, right? This present heavens and earth is going to go. It's going to go, and we should not live for it. It's very convicting, as we're going to see. We shouldn't live for this life. We shouldn't get caught up in the minor issues between people, whatever it might be. Whatever it might be, the issues in our lives, the trials, those things, we need to turn and focus on the eternal things, as we're going to see. The heavens are going to pass away. The elements are going to be loosened or destroyed with intense heat. The earth and its works will be burned up. Then look at verse 11. We won't see this this week, but we're going to see it next week. 
since all these things are to be loosed or destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Since God has a big problem with sin, and he's going to destroy the current sin tainted in heavens and earth and judge the ungodly, destroying them, what kind of people should we be as believers? Verse 12, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, verse 12, and the elements will melt with intense heat. There will be a time associated with the day of the Lord when Christ comes to judge sinners that this world will be destroyed, that the heavens will be destroyed, this current present. Back to our verse 7. But the present heavens and earth by his word are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And let me give you just a real brief summary of the timeline of events, the way I believe Scripture reveals. The next thing to happen on God's prophetic clock is to remove his church unto himself. We call that the rapture. John 14 is very clear about that. So is 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. And then we have Daniel's 70th week, seven years. This is Daniel chapter 9 in which God will turn his attention back primarily to the Jews. And within that, it's tribulation. will be called the tribulation. In the middle of that tribulation, we have the great tribulation. And then we see that Matthew 24. And then at the end of the tribulation, Christ will come in glory, defeating his enemies, Matthew 24, Revelation 9, and many other passages. Then we see he will reign for a thousand years on earth as Satan is bound. Satan will be released for a short time. The nations will be deceived. They will come up against the Lord at the camp of the saints and they will be devoured from heaven. The bad guys, fire will devour them. It's at this point, I believe that's when this current heavens and earth are destroyed. Destroyed by fire. Look at Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. Turn to Revelation 20. We see after this thousand-year reign, this is the next event in Revelation 20, verse 11. And I believe it is an allusion to this, what we're seeing in our passage. I believe it is an allusion to this. Revelation 20, verse 11. Now this is after the thousand-year reign. This is after Satan is released for a moment, and then he is thrown into the lake of fire, right? Look at verse 11. And I saw a great white throne... And him who sat upon it, whose presence, look at this, earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. It's an allusion to it's gone. Heavens and earth are gone, because after this judgment here, the very next thing we say in chapter 21 is a new heavens and a new earth. Chapter 21. You see, God's going to get rid of this heavens and earth, and he's going to judge non-believers, those who have rejected Christ, they're going to be thrown into hell. And then there is a new heavens and new earth. God is going to take care of sin and the environment that is tainted by sin and bring about a place where righteousness dwells. And that's what we're looking forward to. There is a judgment day back in our passage in 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter 3 verse 7. But this present heavens and earth by his word are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. There's a day. There is a judgment day. We saw pictures of that, of the coming judgment back in chapter 2, the flood judgment, the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, where he made an example for those who would live ungodly thereafter, Second Peter 2.6. The writer of Hebrews says, it is appointed man once to die, not two, three times, once to die, and then the judgment. Hebrews 9.27. Then take a look in the book of Matthew. Turn to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. You're probably saying, I was really hoping for an uplifting sermon today, right? Well, the reality is I think it will be once we see what God is doing and where our hearts should be and what Christ has done for us. Matthew chapter 10, verse 14. Jesus is talking to those who he is sending out, those disciples. He's sending them out, and he's giving them instructions. And within that, he relays some truth. Matthew 10, 14. And whoever does not receive you, nor heed your words, as you go out of that house or that city, shake off the dust off your feet. There's some principles there for evangelism, right? 
Truly I say to you, it'll be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. There's a day of judgment. Go a little farther up to Matthew 11. Matthew 11, verse 21. Woe to you, Corazon, and woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles, this is Jesus speaking, occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have what? Repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, we will not be exalted to heaven, will you? Hey, you think you're going to heaven, right? Well, you shall descend into Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which had occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you that it shall be more tolerable in the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. There's a judgment day for non-believers, by the way. There is the Bema Seat of Christ for believers, where we are judged for our deeds in the body, whether good or bad, but not for sin. But there is a judgment day for sinners. Look up a little farther, Matthew chapter 12. Lord Jesus spoke a lot about this because he loves us and he's gracious. He's unwilling that any should perish, by the way, as we're going to see. And that's why he tells us the truth, that we would respond and not perish. Matthew chapter 12, verse 35. The good man out of the good treasure brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of his evil treasure brings forth what is evil. I say to you that every careless word that men shall speak, they shall render account for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you shall be justified, and by your words you shall be condemned. Another passage in Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 12. As Solomon writes this, he shares, he just, you know, tried everything. It's all vanity. It's all worthless. You could have all the fun and whatever it might be you could ever have, and it's worthless. You could have everything you ever wanted. He says in the end of Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13, the conclusion, when all is said, he says here, all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. It's pretty serious. We know in Acts chapter 17, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to all men everywhere they should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through Christ. God tells you to repent because There's a judgment day, and he doesn't want you to be judged for your sin. He wants you to be saved. There's a judgment day. And if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, by the way, Hebrews 10, 26, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment. And this judgment is associated with the day of the Lord. Look back in our Second Peter passage. Second Peter. This is all the same thought moving through, by the way. And look at verse 10 of Second Peter 3 again. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Now, it's not speaking of a day like a 24-hour day. The term day can be used to speak of a period of time that represents one thing. The day of the Lord, Yahweh's day. You see, man is having his day now. And you may not know Christ and you are having your day, but he will have his day. His day where he brings about judgment upon those who have rebelled against him. The day of the Lord will come. It's God's direct judgment upon the world. And it has to do with all these things that come to the point where he's going to remove the heavens and the earth and create a new heavens. All these things. The prophets speak of it. Turn to Isaiah 13.6. They speak of it. It's Yahweh's day. Now we know when the tribulation comes, after the church is removed, the first three and a half years seem pretty good, seem okay. But once the man of lawlessness is revealed, 2 Thessalonians 3, we seem that appears to be when the day of the Lord begins, 2 Thessalonians 3. 
That's when all hell literally breaks loose and then God brings forth his judgment. And then brings and makes everything right. You see, Yahweh's day has to do with him bringing forth judgment, but also then making everything right. Yahweh's day. Isaiah 13, 6. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will fall limp, and every man's heart will melt, and they will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them, and they will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look to one another in astonishment, their faces aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. It's coming. The bad guys basically say it. Whether they say it outright or not, they try to divert you from the reality of that. But the day of the Lord is coming, cruel, with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. Thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. It's going to put an end to it. Turn to Zephaniah. Zephaniah chapter 1. The minor prophets. Zephaniah chapter 1 verse 14. This is why we remember the Bible songs our parents taught us, right? The books of the Bible. Zephaniah 1.14 Near is the great day of the Lord. Near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. In it the warrior cries out bitterly, a day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and battle cry, and the fortified cities and all the high comer towers, and I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord, and their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them on the day of the Lord's wrath. And all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy. For he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. That's the earth dwellers. We'll see this in Revelation on Wednesday nights. Those who have rejected Christ. The day of the Lord is going to come. Jesus speaks of it in the Olivet Discourse. He speaks of it in the book of Luke. Turn to Luke chapter 17. Luke 17, verse 24. For just as lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. First he's going to die for our sins. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same that happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day the Son of Man is revealed.
now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.